Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Making Sense. It's a very special episode. We have a guest on, our third ever guest. We are joined, Jeff Snyder and I are joined by Carolyn Sissoko. And Carolyn is going to be talking to us about the repo market, about collateral. But just a moment before we went on air, Jeff said, you know, all the best stuff comes before the tape is rolling. And it's true. Before the camera turned on, we were talking about ghost money in the 15th century. Carolyn, I know that you have worked on Venice and banking in the 13th century. So ladies and gentlemen, we're going to start talking about collateral, repo, what it's, what's happening, what's happened since 2008. But I think this conversation can go in many different directions. And Carolyn, I'm going to read a few lines out of your paper that we're going to be discussing because they are straight fire. I don't know what typical academic papers usually have, but this is straight fire. I'm going to read this. Look at this. The, the end result of this bank intermediation of the repo market was to supercharge it with implicit government guarantees and to convert J.P. Morgan Chase into a de facto central bank, central bank <laughs> implementing its own monetary policy. Powerful. Here's another one. Our current financial structure is designed to fail and to be bailed out by dramatic central bank action. Here's another one. Indeed, the effect may be so exaggerated that it becomes difficult to use interest rates as a policy tool at all. Lots of great stuff. Carolyn, tell our audience who you are, what you do, and then we'll go into the paper and then who knows where we'll go from there. I'm Carolyn Sasako. I'm currently a senior lecturer at the University of the West of England. Um, and uh, I come from a very traditional economics training, uh, but was somewhat dissatisfied for it from, with it. So I have kind of taken other paths and followed other channels. After the uh, financial crisis, I actually ended up getting a law degree because it seemed like there were so many uh, legal aspects and changes in the legal system that uh, affected what was going on in our financial system. And I think I, I, I needed to understand in some sense what the lawyers were thinking because the economist's understanding of the law tends to be rather static. And of course, a lawyer's understanding of the law is not at all static. Um, and um, a I have to stop you right there. I mean, Carolyn, the, the dedication here to the craft and to the time, I mean, to go and get a law degree, that is just <laughs> unbelievable. That's amazing. So that's terrific. I mean, somebody who really wants to understand that, that that's going the extra mile and then some. Yeah, I, I well, I guess what happened was um, I've been studying money and banking and financial crises since my dissertation, which I completed in 2003. Um, so, so actually prior to uh, the 2008 crisis, I was one of these people who was constantly reading the calculated risk blog, which more or less predicted exactly what was going to happen. Um, and, and so I was following this and just kind of watching what was going on. And of course, I had a traditional economics training, so I didn't. I didn't tend to think too much about law, right? Right. And as I started to try to understand what was going on, and I have to admit, I think it was the leveraged super senior CDOs that really um, got me going. I just sat down and said, like, okay, I'm going to understand what this is and why it blew up in 2007. 
And once you sit down and get into the nuts and bolts of these products, you're just sitting here and saying, this is completely irrational. <laughs> like no sensible system would allow this to take place. And, um, and, and, and so then you start saying, okay, so how do we have a financial regulatory structure that allows this to take place? It's it's really it's eye opening, right? Once you get into the yeah. details, you you always what I always did is I always said to myself, "There's no way this is true. This cannot possibly be the way it is." Yeah. And yet, then you find something even more ridiculous, and you end up saying, yeah. "Oh, how the hell is that true?" You know, yeah. the CDO squares and all the, the you know the commercial paper and the, the liquidity backstop, and you think, "How are the banks even managing controlling the risk of all of the as you point out in your paper, all this off balance sheet stuff?" And I think that was one of the parts that really grabbed me when you wrote in the I think it was on the I have in my notes here um, page five where you pointed out the monetary expansion took place before the crisis but you didn't see it because it was all off balance sheet it was all in the footnotes and then when you got to 2007 and 2008 suddenly mm -hmm. it shows up and people are like oh what is this and mm -hmm. it's well it's been there for a very long time and it was huge and it was massive and it was in these other intricate forms that really did stretch not just the boundaries of money, but as you pointed out in your career path, it stretched mm -hmm. the boundaries of legality and statutory yeah. uh, you know, effect. I mean, there's, there's all sorts of implications here that just defy the common sense, conventional version of how this is all really easy and simple. Mm -hmm. Carolyn, at the end of the, your interview with David Beckworth, which is where I first uh, heard of you, you said that you are working on a project, your next paper, that I think addresses some of your, what we were just discussing, the legal background and how this came to be, the regulatory framework. Now, I was going to think I was going to ask you at the end of this where you are in that paper, but I think this is a natural point just to ask right now. So, where are you in that paper that you're working with David? Because he asked you, he said, was this inevitable? And you said no, because of the regulatory, I don't know, what was the wind, uh, the, the regulations put the wind in the back of this repo market to allow it mm -hmm. to happen. And you, you went through some pretty interesting details. Could you share that or tell us where you are with your paper? Oh, okay. Well, so with that paper, I mean, I have a draft that needs to be improved. <laughs> so I, I have, it, I have it sketched up, but not, not, not ready to circulate yet. Hopefully, this summer I will be able to uh, devote more time to it. Um, but this is a big picture of of how I understand the repo market is that it's something that was. When we think of the monetary system coming from, say, the 19th century um, in England, which was kind of the foundations, I think, of, of, of um, I, I mean, the, the Anglo-American uh, financial system and banks creating money, but in a way that actually is stable and functional. And um, essentially, there was very clear um, structural separation in that system that prevented banks from financing uh, long-term assets in a repo type sense, whether you're talking about bonds or you're talking about stocks. I mean, for, there was, it's not that it was illegal, it's just that what was allowed to happen was very small in scale, right? Well, and there was also an appreciation, right? An appreciation for the downside of doing that or much, much more well-recognized appreciation. 
Yep. No, I mean, it was quite deliberate. I mean, there yeah. was no question. They, they were very conscious of the fact that this is something you should not do. <laughs> and then actually, when it only looking, goes to bad places, right? Yeah. We don't don't even start down that road. I think that was the historical judgment. <laughs> yeah, well, so but so then when they were looking at, you know, the, the 1929 stock market crash in the U.S., which was basically, um, it was called call money at the time, but it was essentially a repo crash. I mean, it was, yeah. it was the, the repo market was huge in that, in broker's loans, you can read a bunch of papers on street that. Loans, yes. Street loans, yes, street loans. In the 1929 crisis. Yep. And if you read people in the financial industry as it was building up, you know, Europe's just sitting there like, okay, this is gonna crash. Like, when is it gonna happen? Like everybody just sitting there like, you know, they, they, they can see what's, they, can, they can see what's coming. So then when you get your bank regulation of the 30s, um, the U.S. Regu bank regulation of the 30s was designed, I mean, it literally says that its banks may not um, uh, engage in securities loans, which is what they were calling them at this time, and they cannot intermediate securities loans. But what has happened, as I think from a legal perspective, is, you know, they use the repurchase agreement. Instead of calling it a securities loan, now it's a purchase and sale. You know, purchase and resale or yeah, repurchase. And once a, you do that, yeah. they manage to get around this law that's still on the books that says banks should not be intermediating this. Right. So, I mean, this is just like part of the Glass-Steagall Act, basically. Banks should not intermediate repo loans. Um, you change the name a little bit. You change the structure a little bit. And suddenly everybody forgets that this is an important yeah, and I, yeah, I find talking to people about repo too that they they get confused about that, right? Because it's a repurchase agreement. That's what repo means. It means a repurchase agreement. How is yeah. a, what does a buy and sale have to do with an overnight collateralized loan, right? <laughs> and it's exactly that. It's 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 how do we how do we you know uh, you know how do we get around regulations? How do we skirt the rules? You know how do we mm -hmm. violate the the spirit of the law? By but what was still mm -hmm. staying within the letter of the law, and it's that's that's what the repo market was. It was an, a way to circumvent, which was pretty a pretty good common sense measure of uh, what they call nowadays macroprudential policy. Yeah, so I mean that's kind of, I, I think there was basically from the 1980s, 1990s, and like early 2000s, there was a failure to recognize the degree to which the the regulations of the 1930s were very much about macroprudential policy, and they were just kind of treated as things we need to get rid of because they're well, I mean they're limiting liquidity, right? I mean there's this whole thing like you know liquidity should flow in massive. <laughs> scale on financial markets and you're like well wait a minute are you sure about that <laughs> yeah, and i every do think that's every time it does it doesn't dialogue. end well <laughs> it's, you know history is pretty conclusive when you have overflowing liquidity stupid yeah. it funds stupid things right it funds insane things yeah. but then but then I, that whole conversation should also be part of this discussion of the federal reserve asking acting as like this market maker of last resort who, which provides massive amounts to liquidity, liquidity to the markets in crisis, right? And we're talking about the same thing. Like if you are, are going to argue in favor of the Federal Reserve actually standing ready to do this, then you're essentially arguing that markets should have this vast fount of liquidity coming from the Federal Reserve in these crises. And, and that's precisely where I'd say, I don't get the logic of this. Right. No, I think, isn't it just basically, especially in the post-crisis logic, it's basically, well, this is the way it is. So we just have to keep doing the same thing. We have to we have to patch the holes in the system 
in order because what else are we going to do? And I think it raises the bigger question of, well, should we be doing this in the first place, right? So let's go back to the beginning and say, mm -hmm. well, maybe we should have a different system where this isn't the case. You know, it's not necessarily, do we want the Fed as the backstop against a fountain of liquidity? Do we really want the fountain of liquidity? Maybe we want a more constrained uh, uh, framework where we don't get into these types of sticky issues. And we get back, we get central banks back to being, you know, Badgett-like central banks where their job is very mechanical. There's not really a whole, at least in my mind, there's not really a, there's not really a need for them to engage in such large bank regulatory authority. They really should just be a minor backstop. Yeah, I mean, I, I think yeah, the, the role certainly should, in my view, should be more constrained than it is now. And in particular... Yeah, rules-based or some, at least something legitimate, not just we'll just wing it and use 13.3 as cover to do whatever we want to do, right? I mean, that's that's kind of how we've evolved. <laughs> yeah, I think that's how we've evolved. And I guess, yeah, I mean, so my main objection is to, I mean, there are certain... Uh, there's certain people who argue that's a good thing, and usually they're people who are like in the market and get an advantage from um, yeah. from this happening. I have to admit, I, the central bankers I have, I think, after March 2020, are somewhat skeptical that uh, about continuing to do this. They're trying to figure out ways that they will not be put in this position in the future because they recognize themselves. Um, yeah, but that's, you know, that's a hard argument. To, it's a hard argument to have with people because you're essentially arguing the gold argument, which is constraint is a good thing. Constraining mm -hmm. liquidity, constraining economic growth or activity, because that's ultimately what people are who argue in favor of unlimited liquidity are saying. Oh, you're, you're putting the brakes on economic growth. And that's really that's a difficult argument to make. But I think it's the right one. It's, well, but, but but yeah, I, I think it's not. I, but and also, I mean, that that's one of the things that puzzles me about this whole argument is that what we typically think as one of the core roles of your central bank to put the brakes on, to take the punch bowl away, like to pre prevent inflation. And yet somehow there seems to be this separation, at least in some aspects of the conversation where, well, yeah, you should take the brakes on and you should slow things down when it comes to like, you know, the general economy and wages. But if it's asset prices, you know, you should just let them go, let them rip. And you're kind of sitting here like, well, maybe, maybe that's not a very balanced approach to things where the central bank is providing massive liquidity to asset markets. And yet we all expect it to, you know, make sure there's not wage growth. It's like, well, this is a really unbalanced situation. And, um, and and so I would say, actually, it's the same argument that we have for central banks in general, that, yeah, we don't want to take off to inflation either. But part of it is we don't want the inflation in asset prices. And there needs to be kind of better recognition that central banks have a job in constraining the growth of asset prices, as well as, you know, making sure that inflation doesn't get crazy in, uh, you know, the consumer price index sense. So to me, it's basically the same story and that we actually have these discourses where that's one of the basic goals of the central bank but somehow people think it doesn't apply to asset markets and that's where i start scratching my head because that that's it's a very new idea that the central bank should uh, provide this much support to asset markets and i do think that um i i think there's a growing recognition of this certainly amongst the regulatory community i don't think they're comfortable with what happened in march 2020 well, yeah, and plus they get blamed for all this stuff when it goes wrong, which yeah. in my mind is, is absolutely correct. They should be blamed because, uh, I, you know, as you talk about the modern central bank's job is also constraint, 
I don't think they really know how to constrain things. There's there's a lack of uh, understanding, and again, our, our favorite topic here, which is the details. I don't mm -hmm. think there's a lot of appreciation for these details, and that's one of the things I liked about your paper, going mm -hmm. through uh, especially the history of the repo market and the pre-crisis era and how these things came about. This, the, you know, the Alan Greenspan Fed was sort of fat, dumb, and happy at that time, thinking, well, if we just raise the federal funds rate, that will restrict all this activity. And mm -hmm. here, lo and behold, in the middle of 2000s, they raised the federal funds rate, what was it, 17, 18 times, whatever it ended up being. And it didn't really restrict a whole lot of activity. In fact, in those last couple of years, as you, as you pointed out, you know, kind of went even more insane than ever. So. Yeah. In terms of you know the Federal Reserve trying to, if we want the Fed, I mean that's a separate discussion. Mm -hmm. If we want the Fed to be a constraint or breaking force on the markets and economy, I think it, we really have to start with they need to figure out how to do that first, and then they should probably define a, a, a set of rules that says we're not just leaving this open to your interpretation of this, this, or this, and you can change your interpretation based on conditions. We need you to do this when this happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I, I think what happened to the central banks um, is that they're at least from the uh, the economists in the central bank were not paying attention to the profound legal changes that were happening in the financial system. So they are trying to set this policy as if the legal framework of the financial system was the same as it was in the 1980s. In the meanwhile, you know, finance has turned into yeah. something completely different. And therefore, I mean, and this is a large chunk of what this paper is about. The, the, the economists need to start understanding the financial system we have. Massive evolution, right? <laughs> I mean, it was, it was unbelievable evolution that, that goes back a long time. And it, it's, it's amazing to me. I, I make the same critique all the time, and Emil does too, mm -hmm. that economists didn't, didn't seem to care. It was, you know, it's not that they just didn't appreciate. They just, ah, that money stuff. We don't, I mean, Alan Greenspan's got it covered. We don't care about all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And it's just, it blows your mind that, that all of this interesting stuff, I mean, even set aside mm -hmm. the ramifications, it's pretty interesting stuff. The, the financial mm -hmm. innovations that went on, especially in the 80s and 90s, and then thinking about what happened in, as a result of that. You, somebody somewhere, somewhere should have said, hey, maybe we should start paying attention or paying closer attention to it. And you're absolutely right to point that out. Yeah. Karen. I mean, I think there were people like Minsky, just yeah. to say there were people who were, there were saying. Yeah, that's right. There weren't, there just weren't enough. There weren't enough people. There yeah. was no, there was no critical mass of economists out there to skew, mm -hmm. you know, or, or to push public opinion to start paying attention to the details. And by the way, I mean, public attention at that time didn't want to know the details. I can tell you that mm -hmm. firsthand work in the financial services industry during mm -hmm. the 1990s. Nobody had any, any interest in understanding this stuff because they all wanted to think stocks go up forever. You know, housing prices go. I don't want to know the details because that might actually scare me into not wanting to participate in this mess. So, I mean, there was no public, there was no public impetus. There was no economist. There's no mainstream impetus to really start looking at the details. I think, unfortunately, as you point out in a lot of what you wrote, it took this massive crisis to just even start pushing the curtain back a little bit and start thinking about, you know, as you did, getting a law degree to really understanding the details and, and the, the full set of details. Carolyn, I've been a terrible host and we haven't really even gotten to the outline, the structure of your paper. Can you spend some time and just tell us what is your paper about, the history that you talk about and the, the transition from an uncollateralized world to a collateralized world and how there's a shortage of that collateral and then March 2020. 
Okay. Yes. So my paper really wants to focus attention on this aspect of the fact that the, the financial system has changed dramatically and economists haven't really tackled what those changes mean. And the core change that I emphasize in this paper is the fact that when we think of pre-2008 uh, crisis monetary policy, we're talking about implementation through the federal funds market, it's an unsecured market, and we have a very simple and clear policy about how, how policy is implemented, how interest rates are affected, and um, you know, every, everybody understands it really well, unsecured market. The problem is the federal funds market is moribund. LIBOR, the LIBOR market isn't very active either. And what's being used now is effectively the repo market and a, a collateralized money market. And there's this issue of how do you implement monetary policy in this new money market? And the main point that I was trying to make in this paper, and the first draft was actually written uh, March 8th, before the outbreak of the, the, the 2020 crisis. Um, and I was just pointing out that there, there's a lot of evidence that the central bankers themselves still have their minds set in this federal funds market framework, and they haven't really thought through what are the differences of having uh, a market that's based on uh, collateral and collateralized um, finance. And so, so I, I actually go through um, to motivate uh, a different way of looking at the market um, by saying like, so how did we get here? What were some of the changes that happened that led us to this? And um, uh, essentially, um, Trying to think about how how to say this this briefly. Yeah, no, I, time. Time. <laughs> I don't know how you how you stuck to how what was it twenty some pages? I don't know how you just you were you were JP probably Moore. editing. I got to throw this off. This is going to be a fifty page report. Otherwise, it's really hard, isn't it? Because you have yeah. to economize in what you're trying to say, and this is really complicated, nuanced, interconnected, intricate stuff, and it's it is really difficult to summarize. Believe me, I. Share your, I sympathize with you there. Yeah, so I mean, I, I think, you know, it, it's almost like, so you start with the situation where the Federal Reserve was providing essentially unlimited intraday credit. And it turns out that in the late 1980s, the banks are using that unlimited intraday credit to finance the broker dealers, uh, the holding of the broker dealers uh, assets, basically. And the Federal Reserve ends up figuring this out. It's like, mm, I'm not sure I want to be financing these holdings. I don't sure I want to be financing the portfolios of you know, the broker dealers, which at the time were much more separate, remember. Um, yeah. and, and so the Fed imposes costs on its interbank lending. And lo and behold, we get the tri-party repo market. <laughs> and essentially what's going on here with the tri-party repo market is that intraday credit is once again free through the intermediation of your Bank of New York Mellon. And um, at the time it was uh, 
um, was it Chase? Okay, I mean, I, 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 or it might have been. I, I can't keep track of all the Chase. Maybe it was Chemical Bank. You know, the, the evolution of the bank. Oh, I know. You got Morgan Guarantee becoming JP Morgan. It's like let's match our Morgans. <laughs> okay. Yeah, um, but but so but, but you get um, the growth of the tri-party repo market, where essentially the banks are doing the same thing and providing free in, uh, intraday credit. So that you can carry the um, the, uh, the broker dealers uh, holdings on an intraday basis for free, but now it's intermediated through the tri-party repo market, right? And so 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 there's just this kind of evolution of this growth of repo, and you know at the time you know it, it didn't seem like such a big deal when the pricing on the tri-party. The pricing on the repo market was really coming from different banks. So you had um, uh, Morgan Guarantee, which would become JP Morgan. Morgan Guarantee was one of these big players that was a, like a dealer in the repo market doing the pricing, but that was separate from this tri-party repo uh, financing initially. And so these were kind of separate activities and um, it, it didn't seem to um, cause problems. Well, I mean, huh? Cause problems. I probably need to look closer at Yeah. No, nobody, nobody really saw the downside, right? Yeah. No, everybody thought this. Right. This was costless and risk-free. There was no downside to this. We could manage our risk. We have it all under control. That was that was. You're right. There was problems, but nobody foresaw them. And it was
Uh, he wasn't thinking very macroeconomically either, I would say, at that point. But, um, but yeah, but so I think in terms of the repo, um, what really ends up supercharging the repo market is when JP Morgan, this dealer in the repo market setting prices, combines with Chase, who's one of the core tri-party um, uh, repo market uh, clearing banks, which means that you're doing this intermediation. So Chase is doing intermediation of taking all the money coming in from whether it's money market funds and um, other lenders um, and you know providing that bank guarantee, that protection of being that third party right, as they invest in the repo market and distribute it across to other lenders. And so you combine this function of pricing on the repo market with coordinating the flows of money coming from a lot of different parties into the repo market. And that's the point at which I think essentially because regulators weren't paying attention to it, they thought of it as this safe collateralized market, what could go wrong? Um, it ends up being, as we lead into 2008, the JP Morgan's decisions are effect essentially determining, you know, what is money? What 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 are people who are trading in financial markets counting on to be liquid at all times? I think that's a Mainly terrific summary. I think you know when we look back at 2008, Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers, a couple of names that everybody knows. And I think some people have heard, well, JP Morgan was involved in both of those cases, but people don't realize how or what that was really about. And that's why I love what you're doing. You're connecting the dots between what happened, the evolution of the markets up to that point, and aha, JP Morgan played a central role in determining whether or not Bear Stearns got to live another day or Lehman Brothers too, and why that was, because they, as tripartite repo custodian, they had sort of a... I don't, you don't want to overcharacterize it, but they were had sort of. I, I, I'm going to determine who lives and who dies here, mm -hmm. which is which has birthed a number of conspiracy theories over the years. But mm -hmm. as you point out, it's it's not a conspiracy theory. It's just the way the system worked yeah. and then didn't work, right? I mean, it's just it was set up almost to fail because at some point, if J.P. Morgan decided, I don't like what's going on here, there's no recourse. You can't really, and the, I mean, the Fed tried as much as it could to provide a backstop or an alternative to J.P. Morgan through, you know, the PDCF and all these other repo or the other repo like programs. Mm -hmm. But it was never the same thing. And in fact, if J.P. Morgan said, you're out of my business, you're out of my tri-party repo book, mm -hmm. essentially with these collateral calls, you're done. There's no going back. And that's that's really uh, it wasn't a conspiracy. It was just it was it was a uh, it was a weakness in the system. Yeah, and I, I I agree that it's not a conspiracy at all. It's just, you know, J.P. Morgan is just kind of doing its thing. It makes a lot of yeah. money by being this real centralized, central bank. You know, it was a very profitable central right. position to be in the financial system. And I, I think um, I think there was a consciousness of the importance of their decisions, but not really this sense, you know, like... So, a de facto central bank thing, but J.P. Morgan did not set out to be a de facto central bank. No. J.P. Morgan ended up with its decisions having this effect, and it just becomes so clear. But, yeah, but you can't, you can't, you can't argue and say, well, they should have taken in consideration systemic uh, implications of their decisions because that wasn't their job. They were not a central bank. They were acting like mm -hmm. one, but that was they thought Alan Green or by, by that time Ben Bernanke was going to do that. So. In one sense, you know, J.P. Morgan's actions are defensible because they were taking actions that were 
that were pertaining to their own business interest, mm -hmm. which is what a dealer does. Yeah. So it's it's that's not yeah. you know it's JP Morgan. You can you can fault their logic and fault some of their decision making, but they're they were not taking they were not taking into account systemic implication because they had no reason to. Yeah, yeah, but I think what 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 really shows their role to me is what happened in two thousand and eight, both March and September, when the Fed you know basically as these assets are you know, legitimately declining in value. You know, J.P. Morgan's repricing them for a good reason. It's not, you know, it's not a bad reason to reprice these. But if the Fed had not stepped in and support the, the value of the tri-party repo collateral, and, you know, in the end, when you look at what was on, what, what the Fed was accepting through the TSLF and the PDCF in, you know, in, in like October, you're like, well, wait a minute, those are equities. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, there's just no question the Fed the Fed had to float this market that had been created by JP Morgan in order to slowly deflate it and and, and allow the system to not face a vast monetary collapse. And yeah, I mean it was an accident, but when you see what happened, it's it's precisely that moment that I say, okay, that's how we know JP Morgan had become a de facto central bank. Because the Fed was the only way to keep the system from coming down in a crash. Yeah. Yeah, I, I would slightly disagree with you there because I don't think the Fed was very effective at all because mm -hmm. we did have a crash. We had a six-month, mm -hmm. you know, bank crisis that spanned the entire world. So we might we might disagree on the the the, uh, the overall performance of the Federal Reserve during the crisis. But you're but you're right about. I mean, I agree with you totally about how we got to that point. And I think that's the discussion we still need to have because we we haven't had that discussion ever since. It's sort of like, oh, subprime mortgages, something, something, everything's forgotten. And now here we are in 2021 with all the same fault lines still in place. We still have a repo market that's a central backstop for a global system. And we don't really, if, as you point out, regulators, economists, they really still haven't paid much attention to it. And so mm -hmm. We're still in the same sort of situation or the same boat as we were in 2007. And we don't have JP Morgan as a tri-party repo anymore. They they saw the writing on the wall and got the hell, you know, they ran for the hills. It's like, we don't want to do this anymore. There's too much to it. But that doesn't, you know, Bank of New York Mellon is still essentially clearing everything. And so there's still the same sorts of, of underlying, unappreciated potential badness that uh, mm -hmm. we we need to talk about these things. We need to understand them. We need to we need to think about whether or not we want to continue this way. Carolyn, that was one of the key points of your paper, if I hadn't understand it correctly, is okay, two thousand eight happened because it was private securities, right? Mortgage backed securities. That's what some people might say. But in your paper you say no, it happened again, but this time it was with sovereign bonds. So it's the system that perhaps irredeemably uh, volatile. Is that right? The whole repo system is itself fundamentally flawed. That's, I mean, I, that actually is a pretty good statement of how I view the degree to which we rely on repurchase agreements. And for that, I mean, derivatives collateral kind of flows into that same, um, that, that's the same markets. Um, but the degree to which there's a reliance on this kind of collateral um, that is structured, um, in my view, from a macroeconomic point of view, that is, is, is designed to fail. And it's precisely because of the contractual structure of the repo 
agreements that, um, you know, the more recent example is Archegos, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, it's essentially just the fact that you have these contracts where the way the lender is supposed to protect themselves is by dumping the assets on the market quickly. And there's no demand that can ever offset that kind of selling pressure. It's like you, you, the demand does not work that way. Demand does not come to meet this, this massive dumping pressure at that time. You, you, you need something that's going to moderate the speed at which sales take place. And the repo market actually does the opposite. If we can, uh, let's put a, a sort of a real world spin on this so that people understand what we're talking about. It's as if, say, banks holding mortgages, mortgages are collateralized by your house. If all the banks in the, across the country have to liquidate those loans because they have funding pressures, that would mean they would seize your collateral and then they'd have to sell all everybody's house. And there's no market available to do that. And so the price of the collateral, the, house, the houses that are dumped on the market goes way, way down, which means banks are guaranteed to lose money on something that was supposed to never have any chance whatsoever of losing money. And that's really the disconnect we're talking about, because as you point out repeatedly, this is supposed to be the safe market. This is supposed to be the safe way to provide liquidity to all parts of the financial system, when in fact there are enormous risks, because especially self-reinforcing risk, when we run into a problem, a crisis, we run into that situation where collateral isn't what we thought it was. And it's really hard to define, you know, liquidity is always what, what it is tomorrow when you really need it, not what you see today. And the same thing with collateral. Collateral sounds really good today, but if everybody's running for the exits tomorrow, you have no idea what it is. It's not really as safe as it's supposed to be. Repo is supposed to be ultra safe, ultra conservative, ultra dependable. And what we've seen, especially over the last 20 years, are these tail events that aren't really tail events because we just don't understand the all the gross implications behind these these uh, the realities of it. Yeah, and I, I think maybe the best way to understand it is kind of from the micro versus macro perspective. If you know, repo repo is not a bad kind of contract. I mean, after all, if you think about how futures markets have worked for centuries, you have repo type structures in them. But the key thing is that you can't have too much of it. Basically, this contractual structure works when there are a few people and it's a small scale. And yeah. so essentially, if everybody who has a repo needs to sell, well, actually, the demand out there is big enough to support that kind of sale. However, when the people who have to sell the repo are, you know, the five biggest banks in the world, <laughs> all at the same time yeah it's like they're too big the quantities right. are simply too big because we're relying too much on this yeah and so it basically was, that's yeah that's, it's, that's, it's that's really it. a niche thing right repo should have been a niche thing mm -hmm. and it turned yeah. out to be a system and not just a systemic thing today nowadays it's it's everything i mean as yeah. you pointed out derivative collateral derivatives markets all currency swap i mean everything Everything yeah. flows into this collateralized lending. It was never meant to be the systemic backbone, but Wall Street being Wall Street, that's what they do. <laughs> you know, they're look, always looking for ways to supercharge ideas. So in my mind, the same thing with securitization. Securitization, mm -hmm. there's absolutely nothing wrong with securitization. Mm -hmm. and done in moderation, it would have been fine. It just got out of control like everything else. In fact, securitization and repo was very much tied together. You know, how do we do more of these, these things that appear to be safe, that everybody thinks are safe, but 
We don't care about the risks because we're all making a lot of money right now. <laughs> Carolyn, you offer, I don't think it's like you offer them, but you say there are some solutions that people have been proposing out there as to what we can do to fix the repo market. And let's see, you, you gave us three, a central counterparty for treasuries, a dealer of last resort, in a standing repo facility. Could you talk about those? And then if I can sneak in another question, I think one of your proposals is to slowly move away from long-term sovereign bonds, using them as being the, as the collateral. But like, my question is then what are we gonna move to? Because would we move to short-term bonds? I assume there's not enough of those, but you go ahead. So, um, yeah, so uh, the central clearing is uh, of treasuries is one solution that's proposed. And um, uh, the, the simple point that I make in the paper is that, well, that could, you know, incrementally increase the space on dealer bank balance sheets to support the treasury market. But if you look at the degree to which the Federal Reserve had to step in, I mean, the Federal Reserve bought 5% of all marketable treasuries in a period of two and a half weeks. And it's just, you know, central clearing is not going to free up that much dealer balance sheet. It's, it's, just, it's just an incremental change that doesn't address the size of the problem. Um, and then um, when we're talking about the standing repo facility, I point out that the problem here was not um, what was going on with the interest rates on the repo loans, but what was going on with the interest rates in the underlying collateral. And so the thing about uh, a standing repo facility is that it can only support the repo rate, right? <laughs> uh, it's not designed to support the value of the underlying collateral simply because that's that's not what uh, a standing repo facility will do. And I have to, I think David Angelfato, who uh, proposed that, has acknowledged that actually a standard standing purchasing facility for treasuries might also be needed um, and not just a standing repo facility. So I, I, um, I, I think that's fairly clear. Um, when it comes to a dealer of last resort, that's essentially what the Federal Reserve did. And I think the first thing you have to say about March 2020 is that it worked. Right. Yeah. And what you can say about the dealer of last resort is at least it's a policy that can step in and and um, and address the system, the, the issue in the size that it needs to be addressed. But precisely as we've been discussing, do we really want that much liquidity flowing into these markets? You need to take the macroeconomic perspective and kind of a long term perspective and say, is, is this really sensible from a long term perspective? And that's why I criticize um, the dealer of the last resort uh, as a solution. And um, so, yeah, so I are because it's not really a solution, right? It's just a ba another Band-Aid on the same problem, right? It's 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 how do we keep the same system afloat longer without without do, without dealing with the underlying issues, right? And that's really the, I think that the hard part is because what we're really talking about is almost a total reform of how we how we how banks do business globally, and that's that's it's just even saying that that's that's not an easy thing to consider, yeah. and it's hard to make the case to the public that that needs to be done. Because mm -hmm. by mo most people's standards, they, they don't see the implications directly. They don't feel that, oh, there's something wrong here because by and large, they think mm, things seem to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and yeah, so 
you know, so what what can you do to change that system? And I think Emil came up with a really good question. So well, where are you going to go if you say, okay, we're no longer going to use long treasuries as collateral? Um, well, okay, so you ship to short treasuries, but there aren't enough of them. And uh, what's what's the longer term solution? And I have to admit that when I look at the history, I would actually say that you'll get more stability out of you know trying to find a way to get the rebirth of the unsecured interbank money markets. We, if we have things like the federal funds market, LIBOR, I actually think that um, central bankers need to start saying these are actually good. Um, you know, these markets are are good. The collateral is not something that always makes things safer. And remember, the whole idea of collateral is actually part of Basel. I mean, it's like, you know, Basel actually embraces this. And so there are all kinds of ways that the finger has been pushing the market towards this collateralized system. And I think you need to reconfigure a whole bunch of regulation to acknowledge that actually there's a lot of value to unsecured lending, but it's, that's it's, such a big change. Is, is, it's almost like an academic sense of risk. You know, let's let's put a bunch of numbers on uh, what we think of how we can calculate what what goes in what risk bucket and what what finance or funding liability technique is. We'll get credit for whatever. We'll do risk weight. I mean, all, it's sort of an academic view of risk versus a practical view of risk. And what you're talking about is more practical view, right? That the repo market, it's uh, on paper, it's really safe because mm-hmm. it's a securitized loan. But in practice, it's it's maybe even less safe than unsecured ways. I mean, think about it. unsecured markets. Most a lot of the participants knew each other. So there really wasn't as much risk as maybe there was in the repo market, which is completely anonymous. Plus, you're using collateral that's been rehypothecated and reused any number of times. You don't even have a provenance established for the collateral. So it may be that there was some benefits. I, I, I love the way that you're, you're thinking here of unsecured markets because there was maybe a little more appreciation for the practicalities behind it. But not only that, um, one of the classic elements of an unsecured, you know, lending market is when someone starts to do something that you think is not very smart, their credit line dries up really fast. And um, so, so, so that's one of the things when you have these unsecured markets and in particular the way they worked in the world before we relied on too big to fail for banks. So, so, so too big to fail for banks is also playing a role in the reason our system could evolve the way it was, it, it did. Um, but, you know, the banks used to, you know, pay attention to what was going on in each other's systems. And so now I think if you go to look at like Franklin National, so that was the big failure in like the 1970s, 1974, that could have taken down the euro dollar market. Right. But the Fed actually bailed it out, even though it was engaged in fraud. You're like, really? <laughs> um, you're not a good precedent at all. Right. Um, and yet, um, basically, the, you know, the London market was much more of this club type environment where the banks were used to reporting to regulators on the other banks. And and essentially, Franklin National had been having difficulty raising money on that money market from the other banks for quite a while. 
right? Because yeah, they do. Right. They looked at this bank and they're like, you know, your business practices aren't right. right. And it's, 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 it's intermediation, right? That's the role mm -hmm. of intermediation in money markets, which mm -hmm. in the collateralized repo system is your banks got lazy, right? They're like, in an unsecured market, you have to do do you have to do due diligence. You have to do your homework. You have to stay on top of people because you're at risk of, and there's no there's no recourse. If if they default, you're done. You've, you've taken a loss. In repo, it's almost like laziness. It's like oh, anybody who shows up with a treasury, I'm going to give you money. I don't care about it. Right? It's, <laughs> yeah. it's lack of intermediation. It's 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 a it's I, I hate to say, it, but it's it's like laziness. Laziness got mm -hmm. over the marketplace, and then it became systemic. And it's 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 a huge unappreciated problem. Yeah. And I also uh, think, sorry, I also I think was... that unsecured markets can be stabilized to some degree um, by the fact that the truth is people move in the financial industry. Like somebody's going to come from that bank and start working in another bank. And, and they, people in the financial industry tend to know what's going on yeah. in the other banks, in part because they're their counterparties. They, get, they have a lot more of this micro level knowledge of what's going on in the different banks. So actually, it's a good way to keep banking practices from deteriorating, mainly because, you know, people are like, uh, you know, did you hear what they're doing over there? And that's enough to say, you know, I'm not sure we want to lend to them on the same basis. Maybe your interest rates to them should go. And those are really good dynamics. And so that's exactly what you're saying. Like that kind of um, dynamic is something that helps stabilize markets. So I'm we also- Emil, we talked about this before, after the Herstat episode That's in, what in I was the thinking. 70s. Yeah, mm -hmm. where the, the, the original, when the when the regulars got to got together in Basel before the Basel, mm -hmm. became the Basel Accords, they said, how do we design an early warning system so that this doesn't happen again? And it was based on rumors. They wanted to, um, they wanted to mm -hmm. incentivize banks to tell the regulators what everybody else was doing. Because, you you know, as Carolyn just said, everybody kind of knew what everybody else was doing. They just, the regulators didn't know. And they kind of wanted, they wanted to generate essentially a gossip-based early warning system, which sounds ridiculous when you first hear it. But in mm -hmm. fact, when you start to think about it, that makes a ton of sense because it's, it's you know, intermediation inside. Whereas collateralized and off balance sheet and all this other stuff is designed to make you make you know everything opaque and lack of transparency and 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 very hard to get information upon i would love to also reintroduce the partnership it seems like back then it was a personal it was in your personal interest to make sure you understood what was happening in the banking system now with the corporations and limited liability it doesn't seem like that's uh in anyone's mind at these banks Jeff, I know you had a lot of notes. Are there any key topics that we didn't address with Carolyn yet? Oh, I before? think, you know, I think I we know, could there go must on be many. days here. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think we could talk. We haven't even scratched the surface on history and some of the more interesting stuff. So I think, you know, in, in recognizing Carolyn's time, maybe we should wrap it up here and, and maybe have her back and we could talk about some of the, the really interesting stuff mm -hmm. about historical developments and evolution because that is a whale of a topic that I think people need to explore in order to understand how we got to where we are. You've got to figure out how we, you know, where we came from. So, and I think, you know, read Carolyn's paper because it's, it's a tremendous asset that the detailed and very good detail about some of the underlying concepts of where did all of this stuff start to come from? Where did it really start to come together? And I think then you start to see some of the fault lines that, that only we only began to start uh, appreciating in 2008 and we still don't appreciate them fully today and you know economists need to read carolyn's paper 
Carolyn, is there anything that we didn't cover that you wanted to make sure the audience really understood? Did we omit a key discussion point that you want to raise? No, no, I think we covered the, the, the key points. So there's nothing in particular that I think I, I, I feel has to be added. But um, yeah, I do thank you for the opportunity to discuss this paper. Oh, it was our, our pleasure, pleasure. Our ple completely our pleasure. And we always love meeting other people who do. And again, <laughs> I have to commend you Once, to get a legal degree in order to really understand. I mean, this is it's a tremendous opportunity for us to even be able to talk to you about it. Carolyn, how can people get a hold of you? How can they meet you? Should they fly to England to meet you or should they uh, see you on Twitter? I know when you were talking to David, you said you're very involved on Twitter and following people. So tell people how they can read more about what you do, what you think. Um, okay, yes, so, well, yeah, so I have, um, my papers are on SSRN. I'm on Twitter and that's kind of probably the best way to, to follow what I'm working on right now. Um, and yeah, I mean, I also, well, I have a blog that I have to admit, I don't uh, update all the time. Um, but if you want to know um, some of my analysis of, in particular, the U.S. financial system and where that's coming from, I have a whole series of blog posts that really get into the guts of some of the evolution of the U.S. financial system. So that's another good place to read um, things that I actually haven't yet managed to turn into academic papers yet. Um, but yeah, I, I tend, probably the best way to keep up with what I'm doing. On, on Twitter. Tell us what is your handle? Oh. Um, it's at C-S-I-S-S-O-K-O. -S 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 so C followed by my last name. Yeah. I'll be sure to put it in all the show notes and make sure okay. that people can find it. Well, thank you very much, Carolyn. We appreciate it. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I really had enjoyed speaking with you about these things. Thank you. Thank you. And talk to you soon. Yeah. Thank you so much.